What do you need this morning, today, this week? What do you need for a successful, thriving, happy life? This is a question that researchers love to ask and try to answer. There are tons of studies out there, academic studies, on what do you need to really thrive in life? Is it money? You know, a recent study came out of Princeton, I think it was just last year, that, that demonstrates, that actually proves that, that, that contrary to conventional wisdom, up to a certain amount, $75,000 annually to be precise, money really does buy you happiness. Seriously, I mean, this, this, this is what the study showed, that, that less than $75,000 a year and you're not so happy. As you get closer and closer to $75,000 a year, you get happier and happier and happier. But then after that, actually, not so much. Every $10,000 after that really makes almost no appreciable difference to people's experience of happiness. So $75,000 buys you happiness. What about education? Maybe you're not the materialistic kind. You're kind of offended that it takes $75,000 to be happy. But education is what you recognize you really need if you're going to thrive in life. Well, this one is tied to money for most of us, actually. And the studies and data are really clear here, too. Americans with a four-year degree, and it kind of doesn't matter where the degree came from, but Americans with a four-year degree, on average, make almost double what Americans without a degree make. Doubles your income. And it's not just the money. People with four-year degrees are twice as likely to be employed as people without four-year degrees. And so not only does employment bring us money, we, you know, God made us to, to work. Work gives purpose and, and meaning to our lives. And, and in America, anyway, the way to get a job is to get an education. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, no, what I really need isn't so much money and it's not so much work. It's relationships. That's what will make me thrive in life. That's what will bring happiness in life. Marriage, family, children. All right, they've done studies on this one too. And the data is actually mixed. By some measures, single people and childless couples are happier than their married parenting counterparts. Now, that kind of makes sense, right? Because parenting is stressful. Dirty diapers don't tend to make anybody happy, right? Parenting is just, just stressful. You don't have much time for yourself. You, you've got people depending on you. On the other hand, other studies point to the fact that the presence of children in a family of any age and of any number protects against declining happiness. In, in other words, that, that single adult in her 20s may in fact at that moment be happier than the single working mom in her 20s. But over time, even that single working mom, who generally is the most stressed out, most harried, least happy of all the parenting groups, that single working mom is going to maintain her happiness better than the, the childless single woman of comparable age. So what is it for you? What do you need to thrive? What do you need to be happy? What do you, what do you need to feel like life is good? This summer, we're going to look at this theme. We're going to look at it by looking at the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs has a lot to say about money and education, marriage and work, friendship and kids. But what we're going to see is that the book of Proverbs actually isn't given to us so that we can have tips on managing our money better. 
or, or tips on, on raising our kids better or managing our family better. No, Proverbs actually tells us that what we really need isn't money, it isn't family, it isn't work, it isn't education. No, what we really need to thrive is wisdom. That's what you need. You, you can have all the things this world says that you need to thrive, the money, the education, the work, the big, the big happy family. You can have all of that. But according to the book of Proverbs, if you lack wisdom, none of it is going to do you much good. And all of it is eventually, sooner or later, going to bring real pain into your life. Oh, but for the man who has wisdom, for the woman who has wisdom, well, she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. Nothing you desire can compare with her. It's Proverbs 3, verses 14 and 15. Our aim this summer, Jeff and Daniel and I are going to share this series, and we're not going to tell you in advance which one's preaching, right? So you're just going to have to, yeah, I heard that, but we're not going to tell you in advance which one of us is preaching. You're just going to have to show up every week to find out, okay? But we're going to share this series, and our aim is to convince you that Proverbs 3, 14 and 15 is true. Wisdom is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Wisdom is what you need. And wisdom, what you need, is found right here in the book of Proverbs and in the scriptures as a whole. So turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. That's found on page 984. We're, we're close to the middle of the Bible, if you're not used to getting around uh, in Bibles. We've provided them for you in uh, the pews and chairs around you. If you're using one of those Bibles, uh, Proverbs chapter 1 is found on page 984. 984. Proverbs chapter 1. I'm going to read just the first seven verses. Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon. Son of David, King of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. All right, these seven verses, just these first seven, these seven verses basically form the prologue of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs actually has a prologue and an epilogue, and we're going to look at them both. This is the prologue. It, it tells us why the book was written, and we see why it was written right there in verse 2. These Proverbs are for attaining wisdom. That's what it's here for. It's for attaining wisdom. And really what these first seven verses do is that they explain what it is, who needs it, and how we get it. It's a very good introduction to the book as a whole. And, and that's going to be the outline of the sermon. What is wisdom? That's first. Who needs it? Second. And third, how do we get it? Now, as we walk through this very simple outline and these, just these short few seven verses, I want you to ask yourself, at least according to the book of Proverbs, am I wise? Am I wise? And what would need to happen in my life for me to become wise? All right, now before we really get into the outline, I want to orient you briefly to the book as a whole, because we're going to spend 12 weeks in this book. There is no question that for many Christians, the book of Proverbs is one of the best loved and most often used books of the Bible. It lends itself to a daily reading plan, right? There are 31 chapters, 31 days in most months. Lots of people read one chapter a day as just part of their morning devotionals. So easy daily reading plan. It's super practical. It talks about things like money and marriage and work and relationships. And it's often quite memorable. The book, as we see there in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, is attributed to Solomon. Solomon, of course, is David's son. 
great King David, his son, and his heir. And, and you can go back and read in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, God appears to Solomon in, in a dream. And, and in keeping with his promise to David that he was going to establish David's throne and have a, an heir, a seed of David, sit on that throne forever, he makes a, a promise to Solomon. And he, and he offers to Solomon, he says, ask, and I will give you whatever you ask for. And what Solomon asks for is not money, not riches, not honor and fame, not lots of wives. He asks for wisdom. And so God gives it to him. God gives him wisdom. And and Solomon, in fact, is said to be the wisest man on earth, never one like him before and never one like him since. But while Solomon is the primary author of this book, he is not the only author of this book. There are several other named contributors to the book of, uh, book of Proverbs, including, as we'll see as we move along, some non-Israelites. The wisdom borrowed from the pagan nations is brought into this book. It's kind of interesting. Actually, the book is not one book. It's a collection. There are seven distinct sections, seven distinct collections in this book of Proverbs. And though all of it could very easily have been written by the time Solomon wrote his section, which is, you know, roughly 950 BC, the book as we have it didn't come into its form, into its existence until at least 700 BC during the reign of Hezekiah, because we're told that one of the sections of this book was in fact copied down by the men of Hezekiah. You can look in Proverbs 25 verse 1 there. It may have even been finally brought into the current collection that we've got even later than that. What's a proverb? It's called the book of Proverbs. What is a proverb? Well, simply put, a proverb is a pithy statement that vividly summarizes general truths about the way life works. A pithy statement that vividly summarizes general truths about the way life works. And every culture has them. This is not the only place where Proverbs exists. Now, these are the Proverbs that were inspired by God, but every culture has Proverbs, right? Birds of a feather flock together. It's a proverb. A stitch in time saves nine. It's another proverb taken from our own culture. And and, and actually, those two proverbs from our own culture illustrate two key points about Proverbs that you need to keep in mind as we go through this series. First, Proverbs articulate general truths, not absolute promises. General truths, not absolute promises. These are Proverbs, not laws. So just just to to give you an example, uh, Proverbs 10, 27 reads... The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Now, does that mean that that Christians never die young? Is that a promise that the Christians will never die young? Absolutely not. It's not a law. It's not an absolute promise. It's It's a proverb. It's saying this is the way things generally work out. And, and, and there's a reason for it, because generally, wickedness brings all sorts of other things into your life, things that are likely to cut it short. Generally, that's the way life works. So Proverbs articulate general truths, not absolute promises. Second, they, they work like one-sentence parables, like a whole parable in one sentence. And, and like parables, therefore, their power comes from their ability to quaint a very quick, immediately recognizable picture in real life that makes a single point that is unmistakable and unescapable. Birds of a feather flock together. I mean, you immediately see the flock, and you immediately get the point. People tend to hang out with people that are just like them, right? Now, Proverbs are poetry, and and so they use all sorts of different methods to to do this little one-sentence parable thing. They're going to use really vivid image. They're going to use stark contrast. They're going to engage in hyperbole. They're going to engage in metonymy. You don't know what metonymy means, but don't worry about it. I'll explain it when we get there. Uh, They use all sorts of devices to accomplish their end. 
But they're also a lot like jokes, right? If you have to explain them, they lose their punch. So, so Proverbs 20, verse 4, I think is a, is a decent example of this. Proverbs 20, verse 4. A sluggard does not plow in season. So at harvest time, he looks but finds nothing. Now, if I have to explain that to you, it gets really boring. But if you get it, if you see the image and you get it and you see the humor, the mocking humor of the sluggard showing up to his fields and not finding anything there, not only is it kind of funny, but it has power. It has punch. All right, this is what's going on in, 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 these, in these Proverbs. And the result of that, therefore, is that the book of Proverbs is not just an anthology of a whole bunch of great pithy statements. The book of Proverbs is a course on life. Unlike the law and the prophets, it's not dealing with, with the big picture of what God is doing in the cosmos, sort of that, that panoramic movie of history. No, what the Proverbs is dealing with is the, the mundane of how you and I live in this world. It is a snapshot of ordinary life. And that's why it's in the Bible. Derek Kidner, uh, one, one of the best commentators on the book of Proverbs, observes, there are details of character small enough to escape the mesh of the law and the broadsides of the prophets, and yet are decisive in personal dealings. Proverbs moves in this realm, asking what a person is like to live with or to employ, how he manages his affairs, his time, and himself. There's a lot of common sense in the book of Proverbs. But in fact, the book of Proverbs rises higher than that, Scripture understands, and Proverbs is part of it, Scripture understands that this world belongs to God. So it doesn't just have any old way of working. It has God's way of working. True wisdom, therefore, doesn't just get us through life. True wisdom relates us to God. And that leads us to the first question. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? So look with me again at verse 2. These Proverbs are for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. All right, here's my definition based on these verses. Wisdom is nothing more and nothing less than the art of living well in God's world. Wisdom is the art of living well in God's world. Now, you're not going to find that sentence in the Bible, but it's what these verses are getting at. Now, when I say it's the art of living well in God's world, I don't mean that wisdom is, is sort of calculating self-interest, right? A method for, for getting what we want and, and getting through life without any scrapes or bruises. Now, that, that's Dale Carnegie, right? That's, that's how to win friends and influence people. That's worldly wisdom. And, and I don't mean that wisdom is mere knowledge. You can have a lot of knowledge and not be wise at all. No, wisdom is knowledge, knowledge about God and knowledge about the world that is put to its highest end. And that highest end must be the worship and glory of God. We were created to worship God. That's who we are as people, as human beings. We are worshipers by definition, by creation. And, and, and the primary way in which we worship God is actually not doing what we do here on Sunday mornings as important as Sunday mornings are. Please don't hear what I'm about to say as your excuse for not coming to church anymore. We're commanded to gather together with God's people and do this. But, but that, that gathering is not actually the primary way we worship God. The primary way we worship God is the way we live out our lives every day, seven days a week, in the world. 
Wisdom is what enables us to not only thrive in God's world, but to actually glorify Him in the process. I called it an art. And, you know, like, like any art, the, the point of art is beauty. Art produces beauty. And I think that's what happens with wisdom. Like any other art, when wisdom is skillfully practiced, beauty is what results. You put a chisel in the hand of a skilled craftsman and woodworker, and you know what you get? You get beautiful carved furniture. You put a chisel in my hand, you know what you get? You get a mess is what you get, right? Listen to Proverbs 15, 23. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word. When just the right word is spoken, at just the right time, maybe in a context where there's confusion or there's conflict, you know what happens? Beauty is what happens. Conflict goes away. Clarity shines in. And it's beautiful. So somebody else might have been in that room and they knew what to say, but they said it at the wrong time or they said it in the wrong way. And it's a bit like a chisel in my hand. It gets worse. A, a mess is what results. Wisdom knows what to do with knowledge so that God-glorifying beauty results in our everyday lives and our everyday interactions with one another. Now, Solomon actually piles up seven synonyms here in these first, in, in verses two to six, seven synonyms for wisdom in order to help us understand what wisdom is. As you move through those verses, he's not talking about a bunch of different things. He's talking about one thing. He's talking about wisdom. But, but then, like, like a diamond that's been cut, he keeps turning it. And we keep observing a, a different facet of this beautiful jewel. So, so wisdom is, verse 2, it's discipline. Now, we hear discipline, and we might think uh, punishment. You know, we discipline our children. Or we might think about our own lives, how we need to be disciplined and get up and go running every morning and eat fewer desserts and, and that, that kind of discipline. Uh, it, the, the discipline that he's talking about here is a bit more like what we do with our children than what we do with our training regimens. The idea here is correction. Wisdom, it turns out, doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally to us is folly. That's what comes easy. And so wisdom includes this idea of being able to receive correction. The wise man is someone who can be corrected. But it's not just discipline. It's not just, just, just training. It's also there in verse 2, insight, understanding words of insight. Actually, the word for understanding and the word for insight are almost the same word. There's a, there's a play on words going on in the Hebrew there, having insight into words of insight. What's insight? Well, it's, it's discernment, and that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is not fooled by surface appearances. It doesn't take everything just at face value. Wisdom is able to penetrate to the heart of the matter, of what's really going on in a situation. It's also, verse 3, prudent living. It's for acquiring a discipline, same word as in verse 2, and prudent life. The wise man has savoir-faire. The wise man knows people and how to deal with them. That's what's going on with this idea of prudent living. He, he, he understands how people tick. He understands how relationships work, and he acts accordingly. Now, it's not manipulation. You see there, he does what is right and just and fair. When I think of this, I think of a, a, the biblical example of Abigail, 
You know, Abigail, who's, who's married to uh, Nabal, and Nabal makes a real hash of things with David, and David's getting ready to destroy Nabal and his family and everything he has, and Abigail is prudent. In fact, the, the same word gets used in the narrative to describe her. She knows how kings work, and she knows how her husband works, and she knows something better be done. And she gets in there, and she deals with David with wisdom, and it changes things. Proverbs 13, verse 15, good understanding, prudence. Good understanding wins favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. So wisdom receives instruction. It's it's insightful. It's discerning. It understands people and wins favor with them. But it's also, verse 4, shrewdness and discretion. Now, I say shrewdness because if you're reading the NIV, the NIV uses the word prudence again for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. And, And so you might think that It's the same thing as verse 3. We've already talked about prudent life. But they're actually very different words. And and I think a a, a better way of getting at this idea is is shrewdness. What does it mean to be shrewd? It means to be astute. It means to be aware. Somebody who's shrewd is not caught out flat-footed. They're prepared. They are realistic about how life works. Now, when we use the word discretion, we say wisdom gives discretion, we normally mean the ability to avoid giving offense to others. Somebody who's discreet is, is someone who, who kind of knows how to keep a secret and, and who's careful with their words and doesn't offend other people. Well, that's often wise, but that's not what Solomon's talking about here. Uh, he, he's using the word the, way, the other way we use the word discretion, you know, where let's say you're somebody in charge of something and you've been given some rules and you've been given some guidelines but it's understood that the rules and the guidelines can't predict everything that's going to that's gonna happen, and so you're told to use your own discretion. Discretion is the ability to read a situation that is unexpected and unplanned, and then to make good plans in response to that, to, to, to be able to act on it kind of on the fly, on the go. I saw a, a, a really good example of this in my own life when I was over in, in Kenya as a college student. I, I was there for a few months, and, and for part of that time, I was living with a Kenyan pastor and his family, and they served me goat meat every night. And I discovered, much to my horror, that I hate goats. <laughs> I just don't like it. I re- and this, this is a big deal. They were spending a lot of money to feed this Westerner well. And I'm offending them every night because I just can't get the goat down. I get a little bit of it down, but I can't get it all down, right? And uh, they're, they're, they're not happy. Now, they're polite. They're not telling me they're not happy. They're talking to my partner and telling my partner that they're not happy. Like, what's wrong with Michael, that he's not eating the meat? Well, as the summer goes on, my partner leaves. He goes to do something else. Now I'm alone eating goat. And, and we, one day we were out at this, at this uh, event, I had spoken at this event. It was a really big deal. And uh, all the local area pastors gathered together for it. And afterwards, there was this lunch. And I knew we had other things going on later in the day. So I, I wasn't really thinking we were going to stay that long. We'd had to leave early, hadn't had any breakfast. And so before lunch is served, they, they start bringing out bread with blue band, which is like, you know, yellow Crisco. But I loved it because that was something I could eat in Kenya, and, and Coca-Cola. And we're sitting there for like an hour while lunch is being prepared, and the pastors are all talking to each other in a language I can't understand. And so I'm just sitting there happily eating bread and Blue Band and Coca-Cola. And then all of a sudden, they say, luncheon is served. And I'm thinking, we're supposed to be gone by now. And then I realize, I ask, well, what's, what's for lunch? And I'm told, goat. At that moment, I just looked at my pastor, David. His name was David, older man. I just looked at my pastor with a kind of pleading and fear and horror in my eyes. And he immediately knew the situation. He was astute, right? He grasped the situation. 
And all of a sudden, there's this conversation going on that I can't understand, and the tables are cleared away, and we're walking out. And he turns to me, and he says, your problem was my problem too. Your problem was my problem too. At the time, I thought it meant he had also filled up on on bread and Blue Band and Coca-Cola. But that's not what he meant at all. He meant that he understood that if I couldn't eat that meal, it didn't just shame me, it was going to shame him. And it was going to shame all these pastors. And so he used discretion. On the fly, a new plan was made. And we were gotten out of there so that people would not be shamed. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Finally, uh, Solomon tells us that wisdom is learning and guidance. Verse 5, let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Something that is learned is something that has to be received. You didn't come with it native, right? Wisdom is received from God, ultimately. And that's going to be the point of this book. We receive, we learn wisdom from God. But we don't just learn it. Having learned it, it guides the course of our lives. Solomon actually uses, in that word guidance, he actually uses a nautical term that means the pulling on the ropes in order to steer a ship. And so literally, wisdom knows the ropes. Wisdom knows the ropes. It knows how to steer your ship through the ocean of life. That's what wisdom is. And it's why we need it. Because let's face it, life is an ocean. And without wisdom, we are adrift. We are a ship of fools at the mercy of events, at the mercy of our own emotions, at the mercy of the people around us. Constantly bouncing and banging off of hard things that we don't understand and Things aren't working out right, and we don't really know where we're going or how we're going to get there. But with wisdom, we know where we're going. And what's more, we know how to get there. Wisdom is a life well-lived in God's world. The art of living well in the face of God. And one of the things that these verses make very clear is that wisdom is not automatic. Age alone doesn't make you wise. Experience is important, but there are lots of people who don't learn from experience. That's why we call it the school of hard knocks, isn't it? There's really nothing more pitiful in this world than an old fool. Wisdom must be learned because we aren't born with it. The ordinary way that God gives us wisdom, since all wisdom comes from God, how does he give it to us? The ordinary way that God gives us wisdom is through teachers. This whole book is framed as a book of instruction, fathers speaking to their sons, preparing them for life. The Lord gives us teachers for wisdom. He gives us his word. There's the first source, the, the primary source of wisdom for us as Christians. As Christians, but he, but he also he gives us godly parents, he gives us elders in the church, he gives us mentors in our lives, and so what I want to kind of confront you with this morning as we start this whole series on wisdom is look, the teachers are teaching. There are teachers in your life, good teachers, wise teachers, godly teachers that are teaching. If nothing else, there's the word of God and it's teaching. The question is, are you listening? You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink. Do you want wisdom? Are you seeking after it? Are you you pursuing it? Are Are you humbly ready to receive it? Are you willing to spend what it takes to acquire it? Jesus said, whoever asks, receives. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are you asking? Are you listening? Do you have ears to hear? How would you even know? Well, I'll tell you one way you can know. How do you respond 
when a teacher, whether it's the Word of God or your mom or dad or an elder in the church or a mentor in your life, how do you respond when a teacher corrects you? How do you respond when a teacher comes along and says, that's not the way to go. This is the way to go. Walk this way. Friend, if you're wise, then you have ears to hear that. You want that correction. Now, this leads us to our next question, which is who needs wisdom? Who needs it? Look at verse 4. These Proverbs are for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. Who needs wisdom? According to Solomon, everyone needs wisdom. No one is left out. Solomon starts in verse 4 with the simple and the young. Now, now the young, that's, that's kind of obvious. I mean, obviously, the young need wisdom. That's the whole point of the fact that we're not born with it. Now, now in childhood, in young childhood, we tend to just follow our parents. We, we take in, we receive the wisdom that they offer, but we're not yet really receiving it as wisdom. We're just following their example. It's when we get to adolescence that this really comes into play. Because it's in adolescence that we begin to question, do I really believe what I've been taught? Am I really going to follow the path, the example that my parents have laid down for me, or am I going to chart a different path, go my own way? That's the question that every adolescent faces. So right away, I want want to put the teenagers and the young adults on notice. This book and this whole sermon series is especially for you, right? You are on the cusp of launching your life out on your own, of beginning to chart your own path, of beginning to make your own decisions. And the question that you've got to answer is, what compass are you going to use? What's going to guide you? Are you going to be guided by by the conventional wisdom of this world? Are you you going to be guided by, by popular culture? Are you going to be guided by the opinion of the crowd? Are you going to be guided by what the world says it takes to succeed in life? Are you going to be guided by your own desire to maintain, prove, defend, guard, and exalt in your own independence now that you finally got it? Or are you going to be guided by the wisdom that comes from God? Teenagers, young adults, you have a choice. Choose wisdom. But it's not just the young. It's also the simple. That's what he says there in verse 4, for giving prudence to the simple. The simple in the book of Proverbs are not the mentally deficient, but the morally ignorant, the gullible. The simple are, are people that are e- easily led astray. And they're easily led astray because they're lacking in settled conviction. They're, they're silly. They're, they're, they're naive. They could be 17, but they could be 71. The the problem of the simple is not that they lack instruction, it's that they lack commitment to the instruction that they've received. The simple are not the same in the book of Proverbs as the fool. The fool is the one who's rejected wisdom. That's not the simple. The simple hasn't rejected wisdom, the simple just hasn't committed to it yet. Keeping my options open. And so the simple man, the simple woman is, is aimless, kind of, kind of drifting, not terrible, not wicked, not terribly good either, just drifting, and so easily drifting toward temptation and folly and ruin. I wonder if you're sitting here this morning and you recognize yourself here. Are you perhaps simple? You know, our age, especially our youth culture, really values keeping all options open, waiting as long as possible before we have to commit to anything, whether it's the party we're going to this weekend or what I'm going to do with my career or how I'm going to live my life, all about keeping the options open. Worse, our entertainment culture, our desire to be distracted and amused constantly, I think really prevents us from engaging in the sustained reflection, moral reflection, 
that's necessary in order to acquire wisdom. So friends, there's a decision to be made here. Starting this morning, will you commit yourself to finding wisdom, no matter what the cost? You know, no one can make you. I already quoted that earlier proverb from our own culture. You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink. No one can make you. But you also need to recognize that you are the one who has the most to lose. Even my own children. It will sadden me greatly if my own children do not choose the course of wisdom. But in the end, it won't really hurt me. It will hurt them. Proverbs 22, verse 3. A prudent man sees danger and takes refuge. But the simple keep going and suffer for it. We live in a moral universe. There are consequences to choosing the path of folly rather than choosing the path of wisdom. And those consequences are real. And they really hurt. But it's not just the young and the simple who need wisdom. The wise and the discerning need wisdom as well. You see that there in verse 5. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. Why do the wise and the discerning need wisdom if they already have it? Well, the answer is, and you see it right there in that verse, there is a moral cycle to wisdom. When the wise listen to wisdom, they grow even more wise. They add to their learning. When the discerning listen to wisdom, they acquire even yet more discernment, even yet more guidance. Here's the principle. Wisdom leads to wisdom. But this is why the wise need to pursue it. Because there is no... There's no neutral middle ground here. There's no static resting place where you can say, okay, I'm wise enough. I don't need any more. I don't really want any more wisdom. I'm I'm satisfied with where I am. Doesn't work that way. Either we are pursuing wisdom and so adding to our store, or we are neglecting wisdom, beginning to stray from wisdom, and inevitably falling into folly. So for those of you that that have been Christians for a long time perhaps here this morning, and that's a lot of you, do you understand yourself to be in need of wisdom? Praise God if you do. Because wisdom is available to all of us. It's not beyond the reach of any. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. All it requires is a willingness to ask, a willingness to listen, and then to put ourselves under that discipline. But Christian, beware. Beware considering considering yourself wise already. Beware being wise in your own eyes. For that is the way of fools. And the wise too often Become wise in their own eyes and then become fools. Do not go that way. So if we all need it, how do we get it? How do we get it? The last thing I want to just briefly touch on here, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Many have have, uh, described verse 7 as the motto of the book of Proverbs. We're going to come back to it again and again. It shows up repeatedly throughout the book. If you wanted to summarize the message of the book of Proverbs in one proverb, this is it. Chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Wisdom begins with fear of the Lord. Now, in in talking about beginning, the, the idea isn't that you start with fearing God, And then once you've got that down, you move on to other things. No, fear of the Lord is to wisdom like the alphabet is to reading. Yeah, you got to start with the alphabet. And then, you know, you kind of never get past it, right? You keep using it every time you read a book. So it is with wisdom. It begins with fear of the Lord and you never get over it. It is the foundation on which the whole structure of wisdom is built. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? 
Well, basically, it means to be in a right relationship with God, a relationship of worship as both creator and savior, right? A relationship of worship to our God, who is both our creator and our savior. William Arnaud, who was a 19th century Scottish pastor and one of my favorite commentators on the book of Proverbs, said this, what God is inspires awe. What God has done for his people commands affection. See here the centrifugal and centripetal forces of the moral world, holding the creature reverently distant from the creator, yet compassing the child about with everlasting love to keep him near a father in heaven. Both at work at the same time. Here's what it means to fear the Lord as Lord, as both our creator and as our savior. It is to live in reverent love. Not just awe, but not just warm fuzzies, but both together, a reverent love. Christian, does your life betray this? Does it betray a fear of the Lord? Or does your life more betray a kind of functional folly? Yeah, on Sundays... You look like somebody who fears God. But the rest of the week, maybe you don't look that much different. Oh, your language is cleaner. You don't go to all the same movies. Your forms of entertainment are a little bit different. But when people around you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, when they look at you, what is plain to them about you? Remember what Paul said? In the, in the reading that we had earlier, what was plain to everyone about Paul is that he feared God. And so he didn't need to commend himself. It was obvious. Christian, what's obvious about your life? What is plain to the people around you? The very beginning of wisdom is to know that at the center of life and the universe, there is a God who made us and a God who loves us and a God who will hold us accountable. Therefore, wisdom begins with rightly ordering our lives towards this God. And so the question has to be, how do we do that? How do we get into this right relationship of reverent love with our Creator? Because the truth of the matter is that, you know, we're not born wise because we're born fools, We're born fools. We would rather live as if there were no God. That's that's how we're born. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is the folly that we're born with, that there is no God or actually that, that we are our own gods. And so what happens in our lives is we live out the kind of worldly wisdom that results from that starting principle, that there is no God or that I'm God. Friends, the truth is, the wisdom of this world is folly. And for that folly, for that refusal to order our lives around the God who made us and who gave his son for us, the the, the result of that is is judgment. We're going to see throughout the book of Proverbs that, that punishment and death is what folly earns again and again. And friends, God in his justice, gives us what our folly deserves, what our folly has earned. The good news of Christianity, the good news of the gospel, the reason we are here this morning is that God has not left us alone in our folly. He he didn't leave us going along in in our foolish ways, in our foolish path. No, Jesus Christ came. He took on human flesh. He is the wisdom of God incarnate. He lived a life that was well-ordered toward the Father who sent him. He lived a life that was beautiful, a life that displayed all of God's wisdom. And then in love, he laid that life down for foolish people like us. He laid it down as a substitute, dying on the cross, dying a fool's death for fools. 
so that whoever turns from their foolish ways and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that the wisdom of God, the, the power of God for salvation, oh, God, God responds to that faith by, by changing us. He, he saves us. He, for, he forgives us. And he replaces our foolish hearts with hearts that are soft and yielding to true wisdom so that we who were fools might once again live lives that are wise, rightly ordered to God, rightly glorifying him. Friends, wisdom begins and ends with Jesus Christ. It is through him that we learn the fear of the Lord. We we learn how awesome God is and how full of love God is. And so as we start this series, here is the choice. The choice before all of us. There are only two ways to live. And it's laid out right there in verse 7. The fool despises wisdom because he does not want to bring into his life the correction that God's wisdom brings. But the wise man accepts God's instruction. He humbles himself before the gospel of Jesus Christ and so begins to really live. Friends, the choice is yours. It's the choice in front of all of us. Will we be wise or will we be fools? There is no neutral place to stand. Wisdom calls out to you. Pursue wisdom. Pursue Christ. Pursue life. Find it in Jesus, who is foolishness to the world, but indeed the very wisdom and life of God. And I hope that is what happens to all of us this summer as we work our way through Proverbs that we find Christ, we find the wisdom of God, and so we find life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we admit that left to ourselves, our our hearts are are darkened, We, we are foolish, in our love of sin and our rejection of you. And yet we praise you that in Jesus Christ we find true wisdom, that that, that in Jesus Christ you invade our foolishness and you change it. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to desire such wisdom, that you would give us hearts to humble ourselves before the correction of the gospel and so find not shame, but life. And we ask this in Jesus Christ. Amen.